Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. James Pendebaker. He is the Regent Centennial Professor of Liberal Arts and Professor of Psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. He and his students explore natural language use, group dynamics and personality in both laboratory and real-world settings. So, Dr. Pendebaker, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. It's nice to be here. Okay, so uh, talking about language, what do you, would you say are the functions, the main functions that language serves? So it's important to appreciate I'm not a linguist. Okay. Uh, I'm interested in language because one of its primary functions is communication, that uh, language evolved for us to first warn one another of, of, of threats and danger and then became more uh, it, it became more uh, valuable in that it allowed people to think and plan have access to the future and the past and it's a you know it's a pretty darn important uh, skill uh, can we say that language influences how our cognition works so that's a long, there's a long debate about that. Uh, you know, obviously, yes. Uh, and, but then in some ways, language is reflecting cognition. Uh, but language, what language does is it, it forces a certain kind of structure on our thoughts. And it forces a, uh, the way that we think in that language is setting up our thoughts in a way to share with others to so when I have thoughts by myself I don't have they're not being prepared for another person whereas once I put them into words there I'm essentially organizing them in a social way so that you will understand what I am thinking what my thoughts are that language is the medium essentially is there anything fundamentally different between the way we process uh, oral language versus uh, written language? Because, I mean, from an evolutionary perspective, written language is much more recent than uh, verb oral language. So are there any major differences there? Well, there are huge differences. One of them is the way our our brain has been constructed. It's been based on spoken language so that there are all of these other dimensions in terms of volume, in terms of pitch, in terms of cadence, and, and all of these other things mixed in together with facial expression. So, so from an evolutionary perspective, spoken language is far more complex. We have far more brain regions that are set up for it. And as you point out, written language is a really new phenomenon. And it's... Uh, and, and so it's a, a much simpler thing to, it's a much simpler thing to study, frankly, and uh, to understand because there's just not as many dimensions to it. So uh, focusing on written language, does writing, the process of writing change, uh, change our psychology in any way? So much of my early research all focused on that. And it would, I got into it through a series of quirks. My interest in language, I, I, I was frankly never that interested in language, but I, 
became interested in how people cope with traumatic experience and I found that people who kept secrets, who didn't talk about traumatic experiences, had more health problems than people who did talk about it. And there, there are various reasons why that might be true. In any case, I did some studies where we had people come in the laboratory and write about major secrets that they hadn't told others, and, and especially emotional traumatic experiences. And we found that was associated with improved physical health. And this got me thinking about why is it that writing about something or perhaps talking about it makes a difference in people's health. One argument could be that, well, you're just uh, getting it out. This is kind of a, uh, a simple-minded venting thing that, you know, you have these thoughts inside of you and they're trying to get out and what talking or language does is to get them out and now everything's fine. That's a goofy way of thinking, but it's, it's a metaphor we all understand. What became interesting was that, first of all, if you had people write, even if they tore off the writing when they were finished, they, their health improved. In other words, it wasn't necessarily communicating this trauma to somebody else. And when I interviewed people and what I wrote myself, one of the things that was clear this was that when you write about an upsetting experience, you're actually changing it in your mind, you're organizing it, you're putting structure to it. And once you're doing that, it's not as big a horrible event as you thought it was when you started. So I think so much of writing, putting things into words, is essentially reconstructing that event in your head. Right. And so, I, I mean, those sort of positive psychological effects that we get from writing about, for example, traumatic experiences. Uh, do we get them more from writing or can we also get them just from talking about them with other people? I think we can get them both ways. I think talking with others can be as beneficial or more beneficial. However, there's also a downside. If I tell you a deep traumatic experience, I am risking something. Uh, you could, after I tell you my horrible secret, you may uh, deny it or blame me or maybe I will hurt you or maybe it'll change our relationships. In other words, talking about something is a much riskier proposition than my just sitting there and writing about it myself. So I think that's one of the primary issues. If whatever I say, you acknowledge, you validate what I say, you're not judgmental, your feelings aren't hurt, you don't change your view about me, then talking might actually be better than writing. Mm -hmm. And these psychological effects we're talking about, do you know if they are long-term or just short-term? That's kind of a... Uh, I have to bounce around the question because the answer, the answer is sometimes they're short-term, sometimes they're long-term. But one of the issues is when you write about, say, a traumatic experience and you do that and you realize, oh my gosh, I see what the problem was. You know, this happened several years ago and I didn't realize this and so, so now you have reconstructed it. In many, many cases when that happens, that fundamentally changes you in some way, or it changes your relationship with one person or others. And in that sense, it has a long-term effect. 
In terms of your short-term physical health, I know that it changes your health for the next few months. But it's a little bit like asking, well, if I give you penicillin for an illness or some kind of drug for an illness, an antibiotic, does that change you forever or for a short amount of time? Was well, the same issue. It, it biologically changes you for a, several, you know, might change you for a few months or, or whatever, but it's not going to kill. That means that, 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 uh, bacteria is not going to kill you now and if it kills you it is going to change your trajectory uh, but and I view writing much like that in that if I write about something that's really bothering me right now it'll help me get over this thing that's bothering me however other stuff's going to come down the pike down down the road I will have other miserable experiences that today's writing probably won't make any difference about. So you know, uh, all of this, the, what the writing does is it changes the path that you're on right now, and I can't make any long-term uh, judgments. Your physical health will probably be, will, you'll have ups and downs in your physical health the rest of your life, so just just get used to it, but this will help with this one. But this sort of writing that people do about their own experiences and the benefits they get from it, does it have to be writing in specific ways? I mean, for example, does it have to be structured? Does it have to follow a script? Or can it be uh, whatever type of writing people uh, want? So the answer is we don't know. Um, okay. I, I can tell you... When I did the very first study, I had people write for four days, 15 minutes a day, and I had specific instructions, and the study worked. People went to the doctor about half the rates as people in a control group who wrote about other topics. In, since then, uh, there have been well over a thousand studies done on this expressive writing, and, and it's now 35 years later, and what I now know is you don't have to write four times. You don't have to write 15 minutes at a time. You don't have to write about traumatic experience. You don't have to write about uh, even negative experiences. You can write about positive experiences sometimes. You can write with your right hand. You can write with your left hand. You can write in the air with your fingers. You can type. Uh, you can talk and tape to a tape recorder. And all of these studies show similar effects. I don't know of any studies that show better effects consistently, but there are there's there no there's not one true way and what what I recommend to people is look if you're upset about something you find that you're thinking about it too much you're worrying about it just write go set aside three days and you know promise yourself you'll write for 10-15 minutes each day about it and if at the end of that time you don't feel any better then writing is not working for you go jog do something else or go see a therapist or talk to somebody if after three days you you feel a lot better and you don't feel like you need to write anymore then great don't write anymore if after one day you feel like oh I get it and I you don't you don't feel like writing anymore then that's fine too there is no one way and you know I'm a scientist and my view about everything is first of all 
never believe anything, but be open to everything. Try writing, and if it works, great. If it doesn't, try something else. And you can try writing in, in different ways, but uh, some people like structure. I don't like structure. Uh, some people think that you should write and then go back and, and edit what you've written. I don't like to do that, but I know some people who do. So I do know, I can say with some certainty, that putting upsetting experiences into words is beneficial. You can go from there. And, that, and that's my, that's my uh, recommendation to people, is experiment. Be your own scientist. Figure it out for yourself. What works best? But do we know anything about what could explain, for example, why it works for certain people and not others? Are there, for example, any uh, individual differences that could explain that? I do not know of any individual difference that has reliably been shown to separate who benefits versus who don't. Uh, there have been lots of studies that, where one person finds, oh, people with alexithymia don't benefit as much as, people, as other people. But then there are other studies that show people with alexithymia benefit even more than people who are not alexithymia. Or neuroticism or, or openness. We don't find any reliable effects. There are a few things that I do, I do think probably make a difference. People who have just experienced a horrible traumatic experience, you know, all of a sudden they saw someone they loved murder right in front, get murdered right in front of their eyes. Forcing people to write about that immediately afterwards is probably bad. In other words, if a person feels that writing would be beneficial, then I would encourage them to write. But if it's something that's happened really, really recently, that you're living with it all the time, writing, it, writing might be too overwhelming for somebody. So I don't recommend doing it immediately afterwards. Wait until you're at that point where, my question to people is, do you find that you're thinking about something too much, that, that you're thinking about it and to the point that other people are tired of hearing about it from you. If something horrible has happened in the last 24 hours and you're thinking about it all the time, that's not thinking about it too much. That's what people naturally do. But if you're thinking about this all the time in six months and everybody around you is avoiding you because you want to talk about it, that's when I think writing might be beneficial. Mm -hmm. we, and, we, and we also know that some traumas seem to uh, be more responsive to writing than others. So um, people at the depths of a depression, there's some evidence that writing might not be beneficial. Um, we know that it is really good for chronic pain. We know that it is, it works for PTSD sometimes, not all the time. Um, we know that it, uh, for people who are grieving you know, if there's somebody that you know who died of a natural death, um, there's not good evidence that writing benefits them. It doesn't hurt them, but it doesn't benefit them. 
if someone has died from a traumatic death, as you know, they were killed in a car accident or something like that, writing does seem to be, there's some evidence that traumatic deaths work, writing works better than kind of natural deaths. Mm -hmm. Does writing have any specific clinical applications? So, for example, are there mental health professionals who use writing in their practice? I would bet, you know, I don't know what, I don't know of any research on this. I would bet that half half of therapists in the United States use writing in one form or another. It, you know, part of it is, is used sometimes for homework. Sometimes it's done in a therapy session itself. Sometimes it is uh, it, it is part of a you know a, a certain methods. Some some forms of cognitive behavior therapy will use it as well. So I think it's often used as an adjunct to many therapies. Mm -hmm. uh, by write by reading uh, something that someone has written, can we learn anything about? the sort of emotions they are feeling or they are expressing in their writing. I mean, for example, in a clinical context, if a mental health professional reads the writings of a patient, can he learn something about the emotions they are going through? Or, for example, you as a researcher, can you use that to learn about people's emotions? Of course. Uh, and that's that this is a really interesting issue because it, it's a little bit why we go to plays or movies or we read novels because in a sense we are by reading people's stories even fictional stories we are learning about how other people think and feel and respond so uh, and it does tell us a lot about people one of the interesting issues that uh, has been part of a, a little bit of the literature on expressive writing is when people write something should it be read by others and um, in you know one of the very first expressive writing studies was what done in a, in a, a two therapy groups and in one group that people wrote about traumatic experiences and then they shared them with the group and the other group they didn't do this expressive writing and what they found in the group that shared these traumatic experiences they were worse afterwards which really bugged me at the time and then it, I, I, I learned that in their writing they didn't know that they would be sharing it and you know one of the interesting problems is a lot of people keep these traumatic experiences secret for a reason and that is they don't that you know they they, they are embarrassed by it they're humiliated they are uh, ashamed and sometimes when people write these things and then it's made public they are further humiliated and shamed and in that case you can imagine where writing is really terrible. A famous kind of example is I've come across many cases where people were, had, were sexually uh, assaulted or raped or by a family member, and often it'll be a daughter, and the daughter then tells the mother, and then the mother, who finds out it's the, the stepfather who did it, can't, it's, it's, impossible in, in the mother's mind and so the mother 
blames the child for inventing this. And so, or uh, blames the child for provoking it. And those kind of cases, that child is far more traumatized than had they just kept the thing secret. Right. So I would like to ask you a specific question about a part of your work. Can language use predict relationship breakdown? I mean, are things that are words people use, things people say that can uh, help us predict the way that a certain relationship will follow? To some degree. Um, over the last uh, 20 years, I've been focusing a tremendous amount on how words reflect psychological state. And I came about this through the work on it, on expressive writing, and I became interested in, can I look at people's writing and get a better sense of who they are and how they're thinking? And I, when I started this work, I was trying to figure out, well, how do you analyze what people are writing? And I had people read essays, but that, reading these essays and, and coming up with categories was really slow and judges didn't agree so it occurred to me you know some kind of case method would be a good way to do it and at the time I couldn't find any computer programs and so I started working with one of my graduate students who uh, had some computer science background and I had, I had played around some with uh, computer programming and we put together a computer program that's called Linguistic Inquiry and Word Count, L-I-W-C, which we pronounce in English Luke. And the Luke program, which actually has been translated into about 20 different languages, including Portuguese, uh, it allows you to go in and analyze any given text, and it calculates the percentage of words in a text that are, say, emotion words or cognitive words or other types of words. And after developing this program, I started to realize that you can learn a lot about people by the way they use words. And it, was, and it wasn't the, the words that I, I would have thought. You know, when I think of, of words that tells me about, about people, you know, do they use sexual words? Do they use death words? But those kind of words people don't use very often. What turns out to be far more interesting were these little junk words, the words that none of us pay any attention to, like pronouns. I, me, I, me, my, or you, he, she, or articles, a, and, and the, or, uh, you know, auxiliary verbs, words like am, is, have, had. And what I had to start to discover was that by looking at these tiny words, which are really common, we can start to get a sense of how a person is thinking about themselves or how they're thinking about their relationship with others or how they're thinking about time or how they're organizing their thoughts. And these are really relevant to relationships. So if I'm looking at a relationship between two people uh, and I, if I interview you about you and your significant other or other people, I can do a reasonable job in telling about the relationship in the way that you refer to you and your significant other. If you refer to your significant others as he or she does this, 
That's really different if you than if you talk about when we do this. The difference between he and she and we in talking about a relationship is profound. And it's not shocking when I tell you this. It, it makes good sense. But there are other things that go on in a relationship as well. Uh, a relationship that is really strong and stable, basically, a person who's in a strong, stable relationship, when they are talking to other people, they are able to pay attention to other people. They're not being, they're not thinking about their spouse or, or their, their lover much. In other words, partly because in a good relationship, your mind is clear. You're not worrying about it. You're not thinking about it. You're able to focus on this person or this task or whatever. However, if I'm in a relationship that is falling apart or beginning to fall apart, I start thinking about the relationship more. I might even talk about it a little bit more. And when I talk to this person, I'm not paying as close attention. If I'm at work, I'm not, I'm, I'm not as attentive to some of the details there. So one of the things that I've been moving to over the last several years is looking at big data. And one of my favorite, so a, a lot of research projects are being done on Twitter. Uh, and another one that's really huge in the United States right now is Reddit. I don't know how po popular it is in Portugal. Yeah, we know about it. Yeah. So Red, for those of you who don't know Reddit, Reddit is a, it's like a giant bulletin board. And a bulletin board where you have these, these you can think of them as rooms. There, there's a room that you can talk about polo. Another one that you can talk about football and your favorite football team. You can talk about gardening or uh, cooking or a, a particular TV show or music, everything. And there's about 200,000 of these, of these uh, uh, chat rooms, you could if we can call them, they're referred to as subreddits. And there's one for people who are going through breakups. So if you're in a romantic relationship and it's, it's, uh, you've broken up, people will go there. And there's about 20,000 people who's a members, who's a member of this group. But there are hundreds of thousands who post stories about their breakups. Now, what's interesting is a person who goes and posts about says something about their breakup and maybe seeking advice or giving advice to others. These people are active on Reddit in other places. They also are talking about their job and they're talking about their football team and they're talking about the, the gaming, the games they play and so forth. Well, what Reddit allows is it allows us researchers to go in and to download everything a person has ever posted on Reddit. And what we did, and this project was done with, with one of my students, Sara Siraj and um, uh, Kate Blackburn. And what we did with, was uh, we would find people who, were, who posted first on breakup and told their breakup story. And then we would get all their other Reddits. And the average person posted on the breakup the breakup subreddit only three times, but they've posted 142 times in other reddits, often dozens of other reddits. And what we were able to do is we got all of their posts in other reddits from the year before the breakup to a year after the breakup. So I could see 
how each person is talking in all their other reddits as it gets closer and closer to the breakup to the day or the week of the breakup and then for for the year afterwards and it's this is i can't as a social psychologist i can't tell you how remarkable this is because think about this i know that they're having a breakup and they're posting in all these other places on football etc and they don't tell most of the other people that they're going through a breakup and in fact they might not even know they're going through a breakup themselves until until the other person dumps them but now what we can look at is as they're talking in these other breakups are there signals that their relationship is in trouble if what we find is the answer is yes that starting about three months before the breakup they start changing in the way they talk they become less formal less organized less thoughtful they their attention span gets shorter they are um they are uh they're they there's a little bit more anxiety in the way they're talking they are um they are uh, talking a little bit more about themselves they're using i words more i me and my because they're becoming more self-focused um and so so we're seeing all of these changes and they're also starting to just ask questions in general and all of this in terms of looking at say organized thought they start dropping and dropping and dropping until the breakup and then we see that after the breakup they slowly start getting better and they're not back to where they were at pre-breakup levels till six months later in other words breakups have a huge impact on them and what's so interesting about this is by analyzing this we can get a sense of people's impending breakup probably better than they themselves know about in other words they're giving these signals and and you know I think everybody has had some kind of breakup whether it's a breakup of a romantic relationship or a close friendship. And sometimes we'll say, this came out of nowhere. Sometimes it does. But probably more times than others, you're picking up some signal, but you don't know what's going on. And, and we're, we're all good at fooling ourselves. Oh, there's nothing. I know I'm sure everything's fine. But, you know, you're, you're changing the way that you're thinking. And, uh, and sometimes your friends notice it, but you're not noticing it. And then, you know, the breakup occurs and people say, I didn't know this. If this came out of the blue, I knew nothing. But, but their friends will say, well, you know, I could tell there was something odd by the way that you were talking or whatever. And that's what we're seeing with Reddit. So it's what I love about uh, Reddit and this big data approach is we are starting to see psychological markers of individuals and also groups of individuals and these changes are subtle but when you have a huge number of people we can start to see signals that we wouldn't normally see right so uh, I'm not sure if you studied through the same approach other uh, phenomena and events in people's lives but do you think that we could apply it to study other, other things like for example the opposite of relationship breakdowns that is relationship initi initiation of course uh, and that's the beauty of this is we can anything 
You know, wherever people use words, wherever we can get a signal that something has happened, we can look and see how it's changed. Um, I, I don't, I'm trying to think if we have not looked at anything in terms of the beginning of a relationship. You know, and one of the issues is a breakup is, for, I say this in a cruel kind of way, it's really clear so that the two people are saying, we're breaking up. Uh, the beginning of a relationship is much more ambiguous so that there's sometimes it's, it's it starts like that but other times it you know it kind of slowly builds mm -hmm. but that would be a natural thing to study and you could definitely do it we've been looking done a lot of work on covid in terms of how how that has affected individuals and cultures we've got a paper coming out on that uh, hopefully in the next few months or um, natural disasters, or uh, I mean, there's having a baby. There've been some cool studies with Twitter on people having a baby. Um, you know, a, the death of somebody close. Almost anything we can look at this. One of the projects that one of my colleagues is doing is looking at when people essentially come out and they say that they are. Uh, they've been diagnosed with depression or they've been diagnosed with cancer or they've been diagnosed with something. And some of these people have been living, say, with depression for a long time, but they've never told anybody what happens when they come out, if you like. Right. So I would like to ask you now specifically about personality. Can we use language to capture personality traits? Like, for example, I know that to uh, to discover the big five personality traits, people use the lexical hypothesis. But to to what extent do you think we can really capture personality traits through language? So, first of all, you have to stand back and ask, what is lang What is personality? And you know, personality is it's it's this enduring sets of traits or behaviors that people exhibit consistently over over time in different contexts. So that's the, kind of the official party line. The way that it has been, that the big five has essentially taken over the field is it's with self-reports. But self-reports are people's self-theories. They are the theories of who we think we are. So if I give you the openness scale on the big five, uh, the questions will be, I like to uh, try different things. I like to go to. I like to try different types of food. I like to, you know, I have uh, multiple genres of music. Uh, I am. Uh, I like to do the same thing every day. I like to be really predictable. So all of those get at either being really open to new experience or or really opposed to new experience. They are your self theories. They're not really true measures of, you say you like all these new foods, but tell me in the last week how many different types of food have you had. Your theories are important to your self-worth, and they are predictable. And if I go in, if for some reason you, your habits change and you stop going out and getting new foods and you start realizing you like the same music, uh, you'll still have that theory that you're you're somebody who is open and interesting and that's that's important 
the fact that self theories are consistent, that's great. I'm interested actually in real behaviors and I'm interested in um, language as well. Are people consistent in the way they use language? Well, it turns out they are. But here's what's interesting. The ways people are consistent in their language use isn't related much to the big five. And in fact, one of the most consistent dimensions of language that we have come across, in other words, this is much the way that uh, the, the big five was developed. The big five was developed through the uh, people giving individuals lots of different questionnaires. And this was particularly true in Minnesota where they were doing the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Inventory. And once you get this big data for thousands of people, you can do a factor analysis of all the items. And what you find is, by God, it's really consistent with, with especially uh, American and English speaking samples. You get these five factors. That the, that, and they, they are real. They're different if you do the study in Mexico. They're different if you do it in China. But you still get factors, and some of them are the same, some of them are a little bit different. And that tells us that people's self-theories are organized themselves reasonably consistently. So I did the same thing with language, where I had was looking at these simple words, and there's this, these, these uh, really common words are called function words. They're pronouns and prepositions and articles and so forth. And did a factor analysis of uh, 25,000 college student essays. And when I did it, I got one factor that on, on, a surf, on the surface it sounded kind of weird. So it was this single factor is made up of words that include articles, A, N, and the, and prepositions, two of four words like that. Those two categories correlate about 0.3. The more you use articles, the more you use prepositions. And the reason is those two types of words are related to nouns. And then there's all these other prepositions, all these other function words, uh, pronouns, I, me, you, he, she, they, uh, impersonal pronouns, it, Thing, words like that. Also uh, auxiliary verbs, am, is, was, and some others. All of those types, so pronouns for example, are negatively correlated with articles, negatively correlated with prepositions, but they're positively correlated with auxiliary verbs, etc. What that means really is if you look at this factor, it tells us that language goes along this dimension, go from this end, that people might use lots of articles and prepositions, and at this end, pronouns and other words. But if you look at those essays, you pull them out, and you, you find people who are high on the articles preposition side, their, their is really logical, formal, uh, unemotional, impersonal. So the person might say, I'm interested, or uh, the University of Texas is a university that would be appropriate for my interests. Uh, it is a particularly strong school because the psychology department, blah, 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 blah. It's logical, formals, and so forth. And then you get an essay at the other end of the, that spectrum, high in pronouns, high in auxiliary verbs. 
their essay might look might say uh, when I was seven when I was 12 years old my family moved from Houston to San Antonio and I'll never forget the day that we moved to this new house and I realized that I didn't fit in and it, I I knew I wanted to become a psychologist that's a lot more interesting story but it turns out that if you're a that the, the personal story, which is high in the pronouns and auxiliary verbs, that person is not going to do as well at the university as a person whose essay has high rates of articles and prepositions. And we call this dimension um, analytic thinking. And analytic thinking is a personality measure. The way you use your analytic thinking in one context is related to another. The way that you use it will be the way that you You'll, if you're high in it now, you'll be high in it 20 years from now. It has all the characteristics of personality. It's associated with uh, intelligence, with social class. It's related to, to all of these things. It's related to physical health. It's related to uh, success in college and on and on. It's completely unrelated to the big five. Now, the big five isn't related to most of these things nearly as well as as this. So it starts to raise some interesting questions. If I had told you, if you didn't know anything about this, and I said, well, actually one of the most important personality dimensions is analytic thinking, and, and that it goes from analytic to narrative thinking, you, like me, would have thought, well, that's a goofball measure. How the hell do you even measure it? Well, I can give you a questionnaire, but you wouldn't be very, people can't really say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm really high in narrative thinking. And you know, all of us can bounce around some, but it is a personality dimension within language. Now, now I've gone down a rabbit hole that I'm, I, I know you're thinking, oh my God, my, re my listeners are gonna say, oh no, he's talking about parts of speech, but What's so exciting about this is that we see personality in language. That dimension is an interesting one because it's, it pops out and it pops out across culture. It pops out in any kind of, you know, wh wherever there's language, you have some people who are thinking in this logical and they're writing in a, in a logical formal way, or they're telling stories in a much more personal chaotic way. And that's who humans are. So. This is a very long way of saying we can see see personality in language, but that personality isn't the personality that we have in self theories of language. Which one's better? That's a stupid question. They they are they're both capturing different personality types. Just like if we measured personality in terms of uh, biological activity. You know, got, you've got your stomach reactors and you've got your cardiovascular people and, and so forth. And those are personalities as well. Right. And talking about stories, are there characteristics that good stories have and bad stories lack? No. <laughs> okay. Uh, let, but let me... So we've done a tremendous amount of work on trying to identify narratives. And there are fingerprints of narratives. And, and a typical story, a fiction story, uh, 
we find it has the beginning of it. It's got, you know, it uses lots of nouns and articles and prepositions, and it drops over time. Essentially, uh, all stories start off where I tell you about the background, who the characters are, where it's taking place, and so forth. And another feature of all fiction stories is once everybody and all the places have been identified, then you can start using shortcuts to, to make references to he, she, they, it, where, and right. so forth. And there's, and there's more verbs because now there's action. You have to start telling people that your story has to, something has to happen. So that's not shocking news. The more interesting one is one thing that we like about stories, and by the way, we find these stories are the same in every language that we've studied. A fiction story starts off where everything is pretty much we think we know stuff. And then some big problem occurs. There's some kind of conflict. And if we're measuring something that we call, say, cognitive tension, where you're trying, you don't know what's going on, you're trying to figure it out, that tr tends to peak at the middle of the story, and then you gradually figure things out, and now you're not, you're not as cognitively complex. It gets cognitively simpler as you end the story. So if you look at cognitive complexity, it starts low at the beginning of the story, it peaks in the middle and drops at the end. Now here's the problem. Does a good story, one that you like, does it follow this pattern better than a, a bad story? Nope. They both show the, they both have the same characteristic. Now, <clears throat> a chaotic story that nobody likes, we don't know about because those studies don't get published. They don't make movies like that. They don't. Uh, so, so in a funny kind of way, a totally chaotic story is one we don't like, but then we'd say, well, that's not even a story. So, so a good story and a bad story still has the same general structure to it. So we're not at the point of saying, we'll just run this story you've written through a computer and we'll tell you if people will like it. Anyway, it's, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you've read old uh, Grimm Brothers uh, fairy tales. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, if you go back and read the original, you know that, you know, not in German, but the, you know, old versions of them, they don't make a damn bit of sense. They're not very good stories. However, if you read the modernized versions of them, they're pretty good stories. And what has happened is, what was a good story back then, we've had to change, change, certain features of it to make it palatable to, de to today's audiences. But the structure is probably pretty similar. But I mean, in that case, uh, those stories would have been considered good stories back then. That's right. And they would, you know, they would have had a beginning, middle and an end. They would have had tension in the middle. But we read them now and we don't even understand it because we don't we don't live in a world where there really are wolves that you really have to be worried about. And in a community where you know, everybody has known each other since they were born. Right. And do these fictional stories contribute to our mental health? I don't know of any compelling research that supports it. There, there have been a couple of studies that did support that, but they haven't been replicated. My intuitive sense is the answer is yes, but I can't give you any 
strong evidence to support it. Okay, fair enough. So uh, let me just explore a last topic with you. Are there any sex differences in language use? Very big ones. Um, mm. And these hold up cross-culturally as well. So in general, and, and I should tell you, this is one reason I became so excited about language, is the way men and women use language are ways that no one would guess. Um, okay. So I could give you a, a quick quiz. Uh, who do you think uses the following word types more, men or women? Uh, I words, I, me, and my. Uh, men. Uh, who uses we words, men or women? We, uh, us. We, yeah, uh, women. Okay. Uh, how about um, emotion words? Uh, women. Uh, how about um, cognitive words, words like because, cause, effect, understand, realize, know? Uh, men. Uh, how about social words? Uh, uh, he, she, friend, pal, etc. Uh, women, perhaps. Okay, and uh, articles, A, N, and the. I will say men, but I have no idea. Okay, so you, you don't know that one. Um, okay, uh, of all of those, uh, you got one or two right. <laughs> and, and the two that you didn't know, uh, you guessed uh, that women might use he, she, in social words more. In fact, women use those at a much, much higher rate. Articles, men use at much higher rates. All the other ones you got wrong. Uh, women use I words more. There's no difference, I, I, this was a cheat. Uh, there's no difference between men and women in use of we. There's no difference in terms of emotion words between men and women. There's some subtle differences, but generally nothing. Um, and cognitive words, women use at much higher rates. So you do as badly as, when I was first doing this research, I would go to, I'd given talks at, you know, at Harvard, at Cambridge University, at, uh, uh, at uh, countries, uh, universities around the world, in linguistics departments, psychology departments, and I used to give them all of these tests. Everybody doesn't know the answer. And the effects that I'm talking about, they're big effects. And all of us have listened to men and women our entire lives. You know, in spoken language, the most common word used is the word I. And still, nobody knows that women are using I words at much higher rates than men. And the reason is we think men are more self-confident, more arrogant, self-important, so they use I words more. Well, men are more arrogant, self-important, self and so forth, but they don't use I words. I words don't reflect self-importance. They don't re reflect self-esteem. They reflect self-focus. If you are looking inward, you use I words more. When you are physically sick, you use I words more. If you are depressed, you use I words more. If people are staring at you, 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 were, you were, 
you use these I words more. I words reflect self-focus. And when I tell you that, you say, oh, yeah, well, that, that's obvious. But the fact is, men are much less self-focused than are women. We words. We words are weird because they there are two types of we words. There are you and I together, we love one another, we're together. But there's a just completely other one, which is, you know, I talk to my students. Hey, guys, we need to analyze that data. That doesn't mean I'm going to go analyze the data. It means, hey, guys, you're going to analyze the data. But I use we in this fake way. And we is, we is a, often a really cold, detached word. And so the men use the cold we, women use the warm we, but it kind of averages out. Emotion words, there's uh, basically no difference. Men use anger words more. Women use some of the other words more, but it, it kind of it comes out, and, and the effects are very small. What's interesting are these uh, uh, cognitive words, or, or well, the, the articles are interesting. Art, the article and cognitive words. So articles, the fact that men use articles and prepositions at higher rates means they're using nouns more. That means men are talking about objects and things more than women. Women use more, more social words because they talk about other human beings more. They're interested in human beings. Men are interested in objects and things. Humans are much, much, much more complex than our objects and things. If I ask you, uh, listen, I'm having trouble with my lawnmower, and it's making a funny noise. Why do you think that is? Well, if we have this conversation, you'll use some cognitive words, some causal words a little bit. If somebody says, you know, uh, Jose is having a problem with Maria. What do you think's going on there? Well, Jesus, that is so complex. You know, there are, if you have to come up with these theories. If I'm talking, so women are talking about other people, they're having to deal with much more complex topics. They're gonna to use a far more cognitive words than if they are talking about a lawnmower. The point is, is that Cognitive words are reflecting complexity of topic. Rocket science is really easy compared to social science in terms of causal models and understanding. And so here are all these words that we're using all the time. Men and women, so we do, you know, I can get to any given data set and just pull out pronouns, prepositions, articles, conjunctions, auxiliary verbs, etc. I don't have to look at anything they're saying. Doing an analysis, and I will tell you if this was written by a man or a woman, and I'll be right at the time just looking at those words. They tell us so much about a person in terms of how they're thinking. And what I love about it is it's completely different than anything you or I would have ever thought. And I, you know, when I first started with this computer program, you know, I was downloading data. And at the end of each night, I would, uh, I'd go in and I'd look at men versus women. And I always found the, the, the patterns I just told you. And the first time I did it, I thought, well, that's just a fluke. You know, we all deal in statistics, women using more eyes, <laughs> you know, the, 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 and I first checked 
maybe the program is, is, is making an error. No, it's not. Well, it's just a fluke. And then I did it again. Wow, look at that. Two flukes in a row. That's, that, that's not likely. And then a third time. Jeez. You know, maybe there's a difference between men and women. It, it, maybe it's just, you know, and I, I spent a year trying to explain it away to myself. And then at some point, I went back and I went back over about 20 different data sets and I realized, wow, men and women use language totally differently from the way that we all think. Right. So the answer right. is yes. Yeah, okay. So, uh, but uh, I mean, do you have any, of course you explained some of it, but uh, where do those differences come from? So they come from the fact that men and women have very different interests. They focus on different things. And you could put this in an evolutionary perspective. You don't have to. It could be a socialization difference. I don't care. Use, use your favorite theory to, make, to, to do it. But I can tell you, women in writing are more interested in human relationships. And men are less interested in human relationships. And men are more interested in things that distract them away from the self, whether it's sports and gaming, whether it's, uh, you know, carpentry or, or whatever. And all humans sometimes are more interested than at, with other humans and other times they're less interested. So it's not, it's not an either or. And uh, there are some women who are more interested in objects and things, and there's some men who are more interested in relationships. So, but in general, there is this skew about uh, men and women. Yeah. Okay, so uh, just one final question. Uh, are women really more talkative than men? No. Uh, that, uh, so we did a, uh, over the years, I've been very interested in natural language, how people talk and uh, working with one of my former students, Matthias Mel, we devised a, a, something that we called the ear. And it's a tape recorder that you, you wear a lapel mic and it comes on for 30 seconds, goes off for 12 minutes. And people will wear this for two days, sometimes longer. And we've had people in the U.S. and Mexico wear it. And I, I read an article by someone who claimed that uh, men used far more words every day than women did. Or maybe it was the other way around. They thought that women used more words. And we had data from a number of studies, and I had never seen sex differences. So we went back, and there was no, num no difference. Men and women say the same number of words every day, which is really quite striking. And we ended up publishing this article in Science, which was uh, which I loved, you know, my colleagues, some of them were furious. I can't believe you published an article in Science that found nothing. <laughs> and and when, it, when, the, when the article hit the, the news media, I, I read all of these comments in newspapers. Well, this study can't possibly be true. This person's not married to my wife. <laughs> it was, you know, it was so funny that this is a cultural belief, and it's a cross-cultural belief that women talk more than men. But in fact, and 
the fact that none of us hear it. That's what I, I, I love about this is we all hold these beliefs. All cultures hold these beliefs that, you know, men are sitting there quietly saying nothing and the women are doing all the talking or that men are using I words all the time and women are not. We've got these, we hold these beliefs where we're looking around and we think the world is this way and it's not. And that's, of course, the joy of science. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, uh, Dr. Pennebaker, just before we go, would you like to mention where people can find your work on the Internet? Uh, just Google my name, James W. Pennebaker, and you'll, you'll find me. So it's, okay. it's that simple. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show. You bet. Thanks so much. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please do not forget to support the channel. You can go over to Patreon at patreon.com slash thedecenter. And you also have links to PayPal in the description box of the interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, leave a comment, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at planlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lagorero, Francis Fordens, Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimir, Greg Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bordarno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Erica Lania, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zoop, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omri Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Yevan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Ethan Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Pak, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Paul Ortiz, Guy Madison, G Gary G. Elman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmides, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafini, Akian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Van Agdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardis France, and Nirvan Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rujewski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.